Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. If you're new, welcome. Thanks for joining us. If not, welcome back. I just want to start today with a few quick announcements. Uh, first, a very special announcement for those of you who consider West Seattle Christian Church your church home. The church leadership team and I will be hosting a town hall meeting on Sunday, June 27th, instead of our regularly scheduled worship service. So we're going to be talking about our future vision for the church community as we regather post-COVID throughout the rest of 2021. And we're going to share about ministry accomplishments from the past year, give an overview of our finances, share about all the tremendous opportunities and potential we have ahead of us as a church family. And I uh, want to let you know that you can sign up for that right now on our church website or on the app, and we hope to see you there. Second, mark your calendars for Sunday, July 18th, because that is the next date of our next in-person worship gathering, and you can sign up for that as well online. Next, we are a few weeks into our summer spiritual formation exercise of hand-copying the book of Proverbs together, and it's not too late for you to join up with us. We're planning on having an in-person hand-copying event later in the summer as well that you won't want to miss. And last but not least, if you're looking for connection and people to hang with this summer, please check out our Kimfolk groups online. You will not be disappointed. All right, let's jump into our teaching for today. We are about to go into an entirely new section of Genesis. We have a lot of ground to cover, and it might be a little bit of a good idea to do a review. So we started in Genesis 1 with this poem that fits into the genre of an ancient Eastern creation narrative. And one of the themes that repeats itself is the goodness of creation. It's a constant refrain. And the creator of all this is a God who is one of peace and order, and he creates man and woman in his image on purpose. They aren't an accident, and he's not mad at them. And this creation poem ends with this seventh day of rest. And if you look closely, the text doesn't say that that seventh day ever ends. And the point there is that the narrative is asking us to practice the spiritual discipline of stopping, to consider not tying our identity up in knots with the idea that we're only important if we produce something. We can trust the goodness of creation, and we can trust the goodness of the way that God created us, that we're enough because God made us to be the way that we are. And we discovered that Adam and Eve are made of the same substance. They're different, but co-equal. They aren't made of different things, but they have the same priorities. They are bone of bone and flesh of flesh. They're together. They're a team, a partnership. But unfortunately, they listen to a different voice, a different story. And they buy a lie. And that lie says that they aren't enough. It's a lie that they need something else to complete them. And then they eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they see everything differently after that point. Their eyes are opened, and they notice their nakedness for the first time. And what we observed is they feel shame. And, they, and, and the, kind of the fallout of that shame is that they cover and they hide, and they blame. And this bleeds into the next part of the narrative, pun intended, with Cain and Abel, which is where we see sin and death appear in the scriptures for the very first time. Cain rises up against his brother, Abel, and takes from him, which is the result of shame and him not feeling like he's enough. And it's there in the narrative that we discover the central problem at the center of humanity, the problem that humanity has. And from there, we see humanity move forward, and the story gets progressively worse and worse until we come to the story about the flood. And God is heartbroken, and he decides there's no other option. So he plans to hit the reset button on the world. 
But even as God is about to do that, he finds Noah, someone he can partner with. Now, Noah means he rests, and God partners with Noah and his family to redeem everything. Chaos is held at bay in the form of a flood. The creative order kind of implodes in on itself, and then God re-expands the goodness of creation, and everything is set aright after they come out of the ark. But right after this, we find the main characters of the story are still, they are in yet another garden, a vineyard. And crisis and temptation rear their ugly heads once again. Noah has had too much to drink, and he's naked. And Ham, his son, who is apparently really sketchy, does something really not right. And when Noah wakes up and realizes what Ham has done to him, he curses not Ham, but Ham's son. It's an act of revenge when he curses Canaan. And then he blesses Shem. So we have a cursing of Canaan and a blessing of Shem. And from there, we see a lot of development among the nations as they progress technologically. They basically discover the new Apple MZ Beta 20,000 chip and create the iPhone Max Infinitum, which for their day and age was called a brick. And the people progress eastward and they begin to make the Tower of Babel out of these bricks. And we highlighted this idea that Adam and Eve leave the garden heading east. Cain is then banned. He's banned to the east. And here again, humanity is moving east. And they are building this tower to make their name great. And their goal is to not be dispersed. And they settle in one particular spot. And God says that mankind will do whatever they set their mind to. And in this case, that is not good. In other cases... Setting their minds to particular tasks could be really good. So God decides out of benevolence that he will diversify their languages and send them out all over the earth. And finally, after this, there are a ton of genealogies. Now, what I want you to do is view all of that recap as a pretext, as a setup for the rest of the story of the entire Bible. And in this setup, we are introduced to evil and the problem that humanity has. It's like at the beginning of a movie when they summarize the great problem that the protagonists are going to encounter throughout the main narrative arc of the film. So pick a movie and decide. And as this scene transitions to the next frame, we're expecting to be introduced to some character or hero that will change everything. Who's this hero going to be? And how is God going to put the world back together again? And as the next frame rolls up, we're introduced to this family that's traveling somewhere and this patriarch Terah is leading them in Genesis chapter 11 verse 27. And what's interesting here is that the genealogy preceding this story, it's there specifically to point out that Terah is a direct descendant of Shem who was blessed by Noah. So let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 11 verse 27. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. So Lot is Abram's nephew. While his father, Terah, was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, or Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. This land is in Babylon, where the Tigris and Euphrates River run into the ocean. Verse 29 says, Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran and, both of, and the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. So what's interesting here is that the majority of the time in genealogies, 
women are not mentioned at all. And when they are mentioned, the author is giving you a heads up to really pay attention. By the way, the same thing holds true in the New Testament. When an ancient author wanted a story to be more believable and credible, the majority of the time, women were not going to be mentioned. So you had better pay attention to what the author is saying to you when women are mentioned, i.e. alongside Jesus in his ministry. And every single time Paul mentions women in his letters, pay attention. So what you need to notice here is that Sarai comes up all the time, very frequently. But what we're told is that Abraham takes a wife who can't have children. And during this day and age, during this time in history, to not have an heir is very, very bad. And if you don't have kids, then you don't have a family tree, you don't have ancestors, or you don't have uh, a family coming after you, a lineage. And this is super interesting because Abram does not take another wife to bear him a child. What this is, is it's a clue about the character and nature of Abram. He loves Sarai so much that he's willing to give up the ability to have kids just to be with her. Let's pick it up in verse 31. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Now, this is really interesting. You have the family of Shem going to the land of Canaan. What we're witnessing here is the blessed side of the family, Shem's side of the family. They've come together with the curse. They're coming together with the cursed side of the family. Blessing and curse are kind of on the collision course. And Terah's family gets about up to the peak of the Fertile Crescent, about halfway to Canaan, and they settle there. And if we reach back and pull something we learned last week forward from the story of the Tower of Babel, you should be taking note of this idea of settling. For whatever reason, the town is named after the son that died, Haran, from verse 28. And we don't really know if this happened right then or if what was revealed in verse 28 was really the story kind of getting ahead of itself. We don't know. But what's apparent is that they settle here. And it's kind of connected to the death of a son. And then the Lord speaks. And what I don't want you to forget is that Abram has been raised in this context of a polytheistic world where there were many gods. So if you asked him at this point if he believed in God, he would probably ask you, which God? Like, which God are you talking about? So if you know that and you're reading this for the first time, it seems like Abram doesn't even know who the Lord is. I don't think he knows who God is, but God speaks to him. Verse 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Well, the text says, leave your father's house, your bet av. Now, what happens next in the narrative is a bunch of clues and flashbacks to the stories we've already covered. Even the reference to, quote, leave your father's house calls us back to the image of Genesis 1, where man is supposed to leave his parents' house, bet av, to be united with his wife. So there's this echo again in the story of a man and a woman who are leaving and then are who you, who are then united. So Abram is called to leave and go to the land, quote, that God will show him, that I will show you. Let's fast forward to verse two of the next chapter. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. And that draws us back to the people at the Tower of Babel who were attempting to make what great? They were attempting to make their own name great. And then we have another reference to this word blessing. 
And we just came from this story of Noah about blessings and curses. So I want you to notice what it says. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. I will bless you to bless others, he says. But if someone curses you, I will curse them. You don't get to curse like Noah did. I will take care of that. That's my choice, he says. So now, all the families that are dispersed all over the earth since the Tower of, the ba- since the Tower of Babel, they're going to be blessed through you, Abram, through this household, this bet av uh, and family. All of them will be blessed. So God chooses the, the bet av of Abram, this family, to put the world back together. And just like God chose Noah because of his righteousness, I think we should be asking, why does God choose Abram? What is it about him that makes him special? Well, I think we already got the first hint with the detail about how much he loved his wife, even though she couldn't have kids. And he only takes another wife after Sarah dies. That's actually super, super extremely strange and weird that he wouldn't have done that. What happens next is a plot shift that we need to pay very close attention to. Abram takes his family, and where does he head? Not east, but west. This guy does not follow the crowd. He's like, peer pressure? What's that? Uh, So for the first time, we see somebody going a different direction than everyone else. Everyone else is moving away to the east, away from God's presence, and now we have this family heading west. Terah started this process, but he stopped in Haran for some reason. For some reason, he settles there. And Abram hears God's call, and he's going to the land that God will show him. And we get this idea that Abram doesn't even know where he's going. So when Abram arrives in Canaan, the land his dad was originally going to, God says, this is the land I will give to your offspring. So Abram arrives in Canaan, and God says, I'll give this land to your ancestors and offspring. There are two things Abram knows right now at this point in the story. His descendant will inherit this land, Canaan, and that if he's going to have a descendant, he's supposed to have a kid. What he doesn't know is how he's going to have a kid. And the third thing he knows is that his wife can't have a kid. So this sets up and explains the very next story that happens. Abram and Sarai go to Egypt. They keep going. And Abram does this kind of messed up thing. He tells Sarai to say she is his sister because he's like, you are so beautiful that if they find out I'm your husband, they're likely going to kill me. And apparently she was so beautiful that Pharaoh hears about her and takes Sarai as his wife, to which you should be going, that's weird because it is. But have you ever thought about it this way? What if Abram was trying to set up Sarai with a good life? What if he just knew that the blessing God told him about could not come from her? So instead of just taking another wife and basically dismissing her from his life, even though she'd be right there with him and his new wife, maybe he was trying to be compassionate and benevolent as best he knew how way back then in his culture with the way they viewed um, women. So Maybe he's trying to be compassionate for her. But what is particularly awesome in the story, for whatever reason he does this, God is having none of that. And he sends plagues upon Pharaoh and his family. And of course, this is a kind of foreshadowing of what's going to come later in the Exodus story. So Pharaoh gets scared and he gives Sarai back to Abram. Awkward. (laughs) So 
they leave Egypt and they head back to Canaan. Now Abram, at this point, Abram and Lot have so much stuff. They have a ton of stuff. So this is way before, you know, they built houses today with three-car garages and people fill up all those garages. Then they still fill up their storage unit down the street. Well, this is way back then. They have all these herds and Abram and Lot have so much stuff and there's not enough uh, fields to, to feed all the animals. So they're competing for resources. There's never enough. So there's this strife between these two men, which harkens back to the story we already heard about that didn't end well, Cain and Abel. And this is when we see another huge clue that's especially a, kind of an especially unique thing about Abram in verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right... I'll go to the left. In other words, this is what Cain should have said. If you recall, he says, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yes, you are. So here's the deal. Abram doesn't have to do this. He doesn't have to give this choice to Lot. He's the top dog. He's the patriarch. Lot is his nephew. Lot is kind of in Abraham's bet of, not the other way around. Abram has basically adopted Lot as his son, and he can tell Lot what to do. But he gives the younger family member, the choice. Verse 10, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the what? Toward the east. Lot goes back in the direction they came from, which means Abram goes where? He goes west. So the two men parted company. In verse 12, Abram lived in the land of Canaan. So once again, you have the family of Shem settling in the land of Canaan. Here's what I think is significant about this scene. When they come to the land, not only does Abram not just give uh, Lot the choice of the land he wants, he lets Lot choose if he wants Canaan. He's basically saying, you, you have the choice of the land God promised me. The blessing that God has promised Abram, he says, Lot, if you want it, you can have it. That is who Abram is. Abram wants to be a blessing. Even though God gave it to him, he immediately wants to give it to others. So verse 12 again, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Well, that's a clue that something bad is about to happen. So there's this other theme in the text that goes like this. Abram is blessed, then Sodom is mentioned. Abram is blessed, then Sodom is mentioned, and so on and so forth. It just kind of keeps going like that. And what we discover is that Sodom is not good. It's full of wicked people who take advantage of guests. So we know it's not a good city. But here's what to notice. How does Abram treat them? The next story in chapter 14, where Lot, because he's so close to Sodom, when these kings from the north come down and capture all these other cities, cities including Sodom, Lot and his family get captured too. And this is where we discover how Abram treats them. When Abram hears this, he goes in pursuit of Lot, and not just Lot, but everything the kings took from these cities. This is who Abram is. He protects his own family. Even though Lot has obviously made a huge mistake, kind of thrown in with the wrong people, Abram jumps in and he does what is right. And he gets 
everything back from the cities that was stolen from them. And then in the next part, as he comes back with all this stuff, he has this little interaction with Melchizedek, the king of Salam, who is a priest of God most high. What does that tell us? It tells us that God has been at work already in this land before he chooses to work in and through Abram. We don't know what it means or what God has been up to, but God has been trying to do something around here. So Abram gives a tithe to Melchizedek, and then there's this deal with the king of Sodom, and Abram refuses to take a reward for himself. He makes sure everyone is fed, gives back all the stuff, and makes sure that the people who helped him get their cut, but he doesn't take anything for himself. And this is where we jump into the next part in Genesis 15. Starting in verse 15, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So wait a minute. He has just fought this battle, and then God says, I am your shield. Verse 2, but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Which means Abram took a guy from Damascus to be his heir, not a person who's in his extended family, not somebody from Ur where he came from, but somebody from Damascus. When Abram goes to war and rallies over 300 trained men, this gives you an idea about how big his family is, but he has no kids. Apparently he's just taking in anyone and everyone into his family. He's just adopting people as he goes along. And then it says in verse 3, And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my house will be, will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord. And he credited him to him as righteousness. So that phrase, it makes us go back and think of Noah once again with the righteousness. But there's a difference though. These four chapters in Genesis cover 11 years. It was 11 years ago from this moment we've just read about that God first promised Abram that he would have a kid. And in every chapter since then, in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, God keeps repeating his promise. And let me ask you if, you, if you were barren and you've been desperately wanting a kid and God keeps telling you that you're going to have a kid, but no kid shows up, how are you feeling about that, about this point in the story? And it's at this point in the story that it says Abram believes. But he doesn't know that it's coming from Sarah. God hasn't told him that yet. But in his mind, I think it's fair to say that he assumes his kid will not come from Sarai which explains the next story with Sarai and Hagar, where Sarah comes up. Sarah comes up with the idea and she says, the Lord has prevented me from having a child. She assumes God has done this to her and won't let her have a kid. So she comes up with the idea for Abram to be with Hagar, because in their culture that would have been acceptable. And they have a child named Ishmael. And for the next 13 years, Abram assumes that Ishmael is this promised child that God has promised him. And then God shows up again when he changes Abram's name to Abraham and he changes Sarai's name to Sarah. 
And he says this, I will make Sarah a great nation. From her will come the child. And Abram laughs and says, may Ishmael live forever before you. Because for 13 years, he thought the child from Hagar, and Hagar came from Egypt, he thought that Ishmael was the fulfillment of this promise. And then God shows up and says, no, it's through Sarah. It's Sarah. Because Sarah is crucial to the story. It's crucial. God chooses a barren woman to bear a child from which a family, a bet av, will come into the world and change everything. After this promise in chapter 15, we see this covenant that God makes with Abram. They cut a covenant is what it says. We've talked about this before a few years back in our covenant and kingdom series. Basically, Abram and God cut a covenant by taking all these animals and they cut them in half and they lay them out. And there's all this yucky blood in the middle and Abram waits for God to make the covenant. And what was supposed to happen is both parties, the two parties would walk through it. And it was a symbolic act of may what happened to these animals happen to me if I don't hold up my end of the deal, my end of the bargain. If I part ways with this covenant, may this happen to me. So Abram is waiting forever, beating and chasing off birds of prey that are circling. He's waiting for God to show up after he's cut open these animals. And while he's waiting, this deep sleep comes upon him. And that word, that phrase deep sleep is the exact same phrasing as what happens to Adam when God creates Eve. And while Abram is asleep, he sees God walk both sides of the covenant, which means nothing more or less than God has this. He's like, I got this. You can trust me. I will make it happen and you will be a great nation and every family of the earth will be blessed through you. That is the wrap up for this week, but I want to leave you with a few implications from this part of the story before we move on. And the first is this, God will always work for the restoration of our worlds and he always has been working. But when we look around and we see the view of the news from our TVs and our devices, I think sometimes we don't believe that anymore. God will always partner with humanity to do that work of restoration. That's his MO. That's his modus operandi. It's pretty strange and intriguing. He could just do it himself or he could just give up on us and choose something else to get it done, but he doesn't. The story informs us that he's always willing to work with someone. Like it says in scripture, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for someone who will be faithful to him. So he's always looking for a partner. The second thing is that other people in our lives may not do their part in restoring the world. They, they may or they may not. Or, you know, as far as you and me, we can only can control ourselves. So why do we spend so much energy thinking that we can control others, that we can convince them to do anything? Because, I mean, really, deciding who you are and controlling yourself is hard enough, thank you very much. We don't need to spend energy on others in that way. This is what Abram does. When he sees something that needs to be done, he just does it. He doesn't wait for someone else. He doesn't try to convince others. He just does it. When Lot makes a mistake and hangs out with shady people, Abram still does what is right. When he holds Sodom's future life in his hands, he gives it all back and takes nothing for himself. And later when God is about to destroy Sodom, he considers not telling Abram because he, it's like God knows that Abram is going to have none of that. And that's exactly what happens because Abram lives to bless and not to curse. He's always fighting for people even if they don't deserve it. We can only do our part. Others may or may not do, our, do theirs, but we can only do ours. The third implication 
is that God can often work through our bad situations to bring about good. That said, I want you to hear me when I say also that this isn't to minimize your pain or my pain in life. This doesn't mean that we're trying to find the chip, kind of the cheap, quick and easy answer so that we can just move on. It doesn't mean that we ignore the ugliness of things in life either, that we stay in those hard moments. It means that we trust that God is actively at work. And so if we trust him, we're going to try to find some way to tell a good story from this. Another implication is this, God's vessel of redemption is family. From the very beginning with Adam and Eve, when this husband and wife were in strife together, God has always been trying to restore family. It's always been the promise. If that's the case then, how are you doing your part to make family or bet of a blessing? It doesn't matter if you're single, or if you're a widower or a widow or older, it doesn't matter where, where you're at on that spectrum because you're part of a larger family. You're called to be part of God's bet of. It is the metaphor for the church. Church is God's family. Are you doing your part to make your family a blessing to all the families of the earth? Are you looking for people who don't have a family and, and say, hey, come on in. There's always room. You're, you're not alone. We'll make a way, we'll find a way to always make room for more. Are you that type of person? And when strife arises in the family, are you willing to lay yourself down to let go of your rights? Are, are you fighting for the good of others, even when they make mistakes? When you know someone should talk to that person, are you willing to have that hard conversation with them? When you know someone should do something about that situation, you are someone, so are you willing to step into that situation? We all have a role to play in God's family. We all have a role to play in God's household, his bet of. And that's what I want to leave you with this time. Until next time. I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.